Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Wes. I'm one of the rabbis here. And we're so delighted to welcome everyone to this important conversation with Yossi and Aviva. I want to thank Hartman for sponsoring this beautiful evening. Um, I want to frame this book and this moment with um, what I think is one of the most evocative and haunting and short and poignant pages ever written about Israel and ever written about the Jewish people today. And it's from Yossi Klein Halevi's book, Like Dreamers, and it's short, sweet, and it's the dedication page. He writes it, uh, as follows, for Mariah, Gabrielle, and Shachar, the next chapter is yours. As if to say that this generation, this parent and grandparent generation, is going to do the best we can, and then tag your it. And then it's going to be on you to carry it forward. And I always found that a very haunting charge, because if we were to freeze frame the moment without any intervention, what would we be transmitting to Moriah, Gabrielle, and Shachar? What would we be transmitting to his kids and to all of our kids? So obviously, a lot of strength, the military strength, the economic strength, the science and technology strength, the NASDAQ strength, the Startup Nation strength, fabulous. You'll be transmitting that to your kids, and that's great. And also, you'll be transmitting a mess. A mess with what you call my Palestinian neighbor. Be transmitting a mess, and with the mess, unresolved, maybe unresolvable, a really important question you're transmitting to your kids, which is, can Israel remain Jewish and democratic in the absence of a two-state solution, in the absence of peace? Can Israel be Jewish and democratic? So tag your it, strong military, strong economy, strong science, strong technology. Tag your it, a mess, and the question, can Israel be Jewish and democratic at the same time? Kids and grandkids, you're on. Now, that's why I think this book is super, super noble and idealistic. And to me, it represents an intervention and a response to his dedication to his kids. Why? Because his core thesis, as I read the book and his other work, is that the problem is you have two peoples occupying the same land, and you have two peoples who are traumatized by history occupying the same land, and they each have narratives, and each narrative is absolutely true. The Jewish narrative is true. It was our land. We live there. We have the archaeology to prove it, like Solomon is real, and David is real, and the temples are real, and we have the history. It's real. And then we were thrown out, and we suffered and died, and were persecuted, pogroms and massacres, and Kralnitsky, and the Holocaust, and we came home. That's all real. And they have a narrative, which is, hey, yeah, but that's not our problem. We, we're not Hitler, we're not Nazis. We didn't cause European anti-Semitism. Why should your problem mean that we don't have a home anymore? That's also true. And the problem is, we're so in our narrative, we can't see their narrative. They're so in their narrative, they can't see our narrative. And so, so close and yet so far. 
Since we're in the Rabbi Chill Sanctuary, and since we're in a shul, I cannot help but read this moment through the lens of Shalach Lecha, which is our weekly Torah portion. And in Shalach Lecha, it's about how do the Jewish people think about the residents of the land who are living in Canaan. And there was a generational sin, which was want of faith that we could conquer it. And I see, Yossi, your book as responding to another generational sin, or perhaps just real politic, which is what always was, always will be, and it's hopeless. What always was, always will be, and it's hopeless. Whatever we tried ended badly, and it's hopeless, so we're not going to try anymore. And that's generational real politic or generational sin, depending. And what your book is, and your work is, is an intervention. You have, in previous books, met with Palestinians. You've talked to folks who live in Gaza, the West Bank. You've heard their stories, and then you've written about their stories. But you've heard their stories. And now you're trying to get them to hear our story. You share lovingly and honestly our story, make it available in Arabic online for free in the hope that they can hear our story. And so this, you are Kalev ben Yafuna. You are Yehoshua ben Nun. In a generation where there's a perception that it can't be made better. We tried, we failed, we tried, we failed, we tried, we failed. We're stuck. Kids, we're going to give you a strong economy, a strong military, and a mess, and a question. You're saying maybe the solution is to actually see a person on the other side. If there were a Nobel Prize for Jewish moral courage, I would vote for you. Welcome. Thank you, Rabbi. I can't do better than introduction. You've already won a Jewish Nobel Prize. <laughs> Thanks so much. Uh, we're going to jump into a conversation, but before we do so, I'll just lay out the plan for this evening. I'm going to ask Yossi to go to the podium and just to deliver some introductory remarks to introduce us to the book and to frame our conversation. Then Yossi and I will enter into conversation ourselves. We'll then uh, invite the audience to give us questions. You've all been given an index card, and Dalit, who's over there, and Naomi, who is over who will come into the sanctuary soon, will be walking around to collect the cards and to bring them up to me. I am committed to making sure that we end on time by 9.30 at the latest, so before we wrap up, I'll give it back to Yossi to give us concluding remarks. After the talk, the book is available for sale outside, and Yossi will be on hand to uh, sign copies, and then I believe we'll be ending the evening on a sweet note with a dessert reception. Did I get it all? Nice, all right. Uh, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor came out two and a half weeks ago. It came out the same week that Israel turned 70 by the English calendar, which is a question I'm going to be asking you about, the timing. It took exactly one week for the book to become a New York Times bestseller, which is a remarkable accomplishment. This is Yossi's fourth book. And in the book, Yossi is writing to an imagined Palestinian neighbor who lives on the next hill in the West Bank. And it's an elegant story tells his personal story, speaks about Jewish history and the Jewish connection to the land of Israel, and he gives us a language, a narrative, with which to talk about the conflict. And it very much feels in the book as if Yossi is extending a hand and trying to start 
a conversation. And this is a remarkably honest book, one of the most honest that I've seen, because it speaks about the aspirations and fears of the Israeli people, but also the aspirations and fears of the Palestinian people. And in many ways, it feels like a personal journey. So can I invite you to take us on your journey and tell us why you wrote the book? Good evening, everyone. And uh, thank you very much, Aviva and Rabbi Wes. I, I had no idea that when I was coming here, I would be leaving with a Nobel Prize. So, <laughs> <clears throat> so it's truly, truly an honor to share your, your pulpit. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Dalit Horn, my colleague and friend from Hartman, uh, Amy Klein, uh, Alan and Marsha Leifer, all of you for making this evening possible. Thank you. The, uh, the origins of this little book uh, begins uh, in a previous book that, uh, that I wrote in the late 1990s, which the rabbi alluded to, and that was a book that, that told the story of a journey that I took into Palestinian society, into the West Bank and Gaza, uh, as the Oslo process was inevitably heading toward its, its violent uh, culmination. And the purpose of that journey was to go into the faiths of my neighbors, into Islam and Christianity, I went into mosques, monasteries, on a journey that I called a, a, a quest of religious empathy. And my purpose was to listen, to listen to my neighbors, to understand something of their inner lives, and to immerse myself as much as I could in their narrative. I read Palestinian accounts, histories, poetry, and the book, this book of empathy, this attempt to stretch my capacity for listening and understanding uh, the other side, uh, was published on September 11th, 2001. And that is really a metaphor for what happened to my own relationship to this book. Because more immediately, for me as an Israeli, the book came out at the height of the Second Intifada, when the hope of peace collapsed, when uh, buses and cafes were blowing up seemingly every other day in Jerusalem. I was raising at the time two out of the three of those kids uh, as teenagers. They were on buses going downtown, uh, numerous close encounters with, uh, with, with suicide bombings. Uh, my two older kids both lost friends. And when we would say goodbye to them, uh, my wife and I, in the morning, we made sure you hugged your children because you didn't know if you would see them uh, at night. And what was so traumatic for me and I think many other Israelis, especially those of us who had made some effort to understand the other side, was that the Second Intifada followed the the most sub substantial peace offering that Israel had ever made. Uh, and that happened under Ehud Barak, first at Camp David in July 2000, then with the Clinton proposal six months later. And so as a result of the Second Intifada, like most Israelis, I shut down. 
I lost my capacity for reaching out to my neighbors. And I was angry. I didn't want to, to hear about the occupation because, again, like most Israelis, I felt and feel to this day that the occupation has become, at the very least, a shared enterprise of the Palestinian leadership because this occupation could have been ended at various times. This book is a belated sequel to that interrupted journey to my neighbors. And as you heard from both the rabbi and Aviva, this book is an attempt in a way to reverse the process of my previous book, my journey into Palestinian society, my journey of listening. And in this book, I'm speaking to my neighbor. I'm telling my neighbor who I am, who my people is, what our story is, why I came home, why I left New York City in 1982, got on an LL plane and flew to the Middle East as a new immigrant to Israel, and why we came home. And I'm asking my neighbor to listen to our story, and I feel that I have the right to ask that because of the time that I put in listening to my neighbor's story. And so this is an, an invitation to a reciprocal journey. In the Jewish community today, we're divided along two commitments that are related to Israel. One part of the Jewish community is actively defending our narrative, which is under sustained assault by Israel's enemies. And another part of the community is trying to keep alive the hope of a two-state solution. What I've tried to do in this book is combine both of those commitments, because I believe that defending our narrative, explaining our narrative, especially to the Arab and Muslim worlds, is a prerequisite for peace. One of the reasons, I believe, one of the deep reasons for the continued failure of a peace process is because the Jewish story has been systematically distorted and denied throughout Palestinian society and really throughout the Middle East. I believe that the root cause of this conflict is the denial of our indigenousness, the denial of our legitimacy. And the reason that I believe that is because a majority of Israelis today, and we see this from the polls, and it's true the numbers are going down, but nevertheless, there still is a majority of Israelis who will answer affirmatively when asked, do you support a two-state solution? But then probe a little more deeply and ask those same Israelis who say yes to a two-state solution in principle, do you believe that a two-state solution will actually bring peace? A very large majority will say no. And the reason for that is we pay close attention to how we are perceived, how our legitimacy is perceived by our neighbors. And so I've come to the conclusion that in order to make some break in this seeming cycle of despair, we need to start explaining our story to our neighbors who have no idea who we are. 
my hope is that this book will begin a modest conversation between an Israeli and my neighbors about our place in the Middle East, about our story. And I see this book, and, and as you, you heard from the rabbi, the book has been translated into Arabic. It's now available online for free downloading. That's only in Arabic. <laughs> and uh, so if you want to take a crash course in Arabic. And, uh, and I, see, I see this book really as a project. As the, I don't see this as a manifesto, but as an invitation to my neighbor to respond and to tell me your story. Let's begin a conversation about our narratives. And I have begun getting responses, not all of them negative. <clears throat> Maybe a brief word about why I resumed my conversation with my neighbors after years of detachment. The second, the second Intifada placed Israeli society in deep freeze. And I think much of the American Jewish community has never really internalized just what a watershed the Second Intifada was. It transformed Israeli society. The Israeli left virtually collapsed and is now a, a, a seemingly permanent minority. And the reason that I became committed once again to renewing this journey of conversation with my neighbors in a different form this time than the last is because of a project that I've been co-directing at Hartman, the Hartman Institute where I sit, for the last five, six years. The project is called the Muslim Leadership Initiative, MLI, and we bring groups of emerging young Muslim American leaders to the Institute in Jerusalem to study Judaism, Israel, and Zionism. We are graduating our fifth cohort, God willing, in July, and we've already begun interviewing for cohort six and seven. In the middle of the Gaza riots, we were getting applicants and continuing to interview very, very fine uh, people for this program. And what I learned in that program are really two things. The first is it reawakened in me the need for empathy, because when you're involved deeply in this kind of, a, of, of interfaith, where you're getting to the heart of what divides us, in this case, Jews and Muslims, you begin to learn to see reality through the other's eyes. It's a kind of a, a transference of, of sensibilities. And we produce graduates who now understand our story, who understand why we insist on the need for the Muslim world's coming to terms with our legitimacy. But it also works the other way around. I began to see just what this looks like, what it means for Israel to be permanently ruling another people, how that looks to Muslim sensibilities. What I, what I learned as well from my years of teaching Judaism and Israel to Muslim American leaders is what the Muslim world does not understand about who we are. Peoplehood, our connection to a land, 
the longing for restoration of Jewish national sovereignty, these are all points in our identity that we take for granted. Muslims do not understand how we understand ourselves. When you speak to Muslims, they'll tell you we have no problem as Muslims with you as a religion. You lived as a religious minority under Islam for centuries, and that's not a problem for us. But when in the 19th century you began to re-identify yourselves as, a, as an imagined nation, that's one step too far for us. And so we try to teach Muslims who come to the Hartman program how we navigate the relationship between religion, peoplehood, land, and sovereignty. For example, Muslims have a deep obstacle in understanding how there can be Jewish atheists, something that we take for granted. But in Islam, and for that matter in Christianity, if you're an atheist, you can't be a Muslim. If, if Judaism is only a religion, then how can you have Jewish atheists? So that's our starting point. And then we explain, well, Judaism is a, we started as a family, we evolved into a people, and then this people took on a particular religious identity. But that's the progression, and that has defined Jewish identity throughout our history. And so what I've learned in that experience is how to speak about Judaism, Jewish identity, Israel, Zionism, to a very difficult audience. And I tried to take these last five, six years of experience with, with Muslim leaders and address my Palestinian neighbors. Because it's one thing to be speaking about Judaism in Israel to Muslim American leaders, but I live directly across Palestinian villages. I live in a neighborhood called French Hill, the very edge of Jerusalem, and I live in the last row of houses in French Hill. I look out onto Palestinian villages. And so this is an attempt to take what I've learned from the Hartman experience and apply it to the Middle East. I'll say one or two last points and then we'll go to our conversation. The book is an attempt to balance empathy for the Palestinians with maintaining the integrity of the Jewish story. And we often, as a community, seem to really be divided in, in one of two ways in how we speak about the Palestinians. The right speaks about the Palestinians with anger, and the left speaks about the Palestinians with apology. And this is an attempt to circumvent what I consider to be a, a sterile debate between left and right, and to tell, simply tell our story. So it's, I'm also trying to model a different kind of language for how we can be speaking to the Palestinians and about the Palestinians, even in our own internal Jewish conversation. And in that sense, I would say that I have two audiences for this book. The first and most immediate audience, of course, are my Palestinian neighbors, and more broadly, the region, anyone in the region who cares to respond 
And the second is, uh, is the American Jewish community. And at one point, I thought that I would be writing two books. One is a letter, letters to my Palestinian neighbor. The other is letters to young American Jews. And midway through writing this book, I realized that it's probably the same book. Because the same issues, the same questions about how Jewish identity works, why Israel matters, uh, can be applied to young American Jews just as well. And so I'll, uh, I'll pause here and uh, resume the conversation with Aviva. Thank you. Are we working? There we are. Thank you so much, Yossi. That was wonderful. All set? Great. So, I mean, you touched on everything that I want to ask you about in your introduction, but I'm going to start by asking you about the timing. Now, the, the book came out on May 15th, which is the day after the United States or the English calendar recognizes uh, Israel's Independence Day. And I wonder if that's a conscious choice, because Israel celebrated Yom Atzmaut, 5th of ER, that was back in April. So was it intentional to put the book out that week? And the reason that I ask you is that a cynic could suggest that that was the week that we knew that President Trump was going to move the embassy, which was probably going to be a week of high tension, which was probably, in all likelihood, going to be a week of violence. And so was that the backdrop with which you wanted us to be reading the book? Yeah, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I thought I would go under the radar with this book. You know, there was 9-11 for the, and my first book, which was uh, the story of my teenage years uh, on, these, on the Jewish far right. I was in the Jewish Defense League with Mayor Kahana. And so my first book was called Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist. And that came out two days after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. And so uh, I, was, I was hoping to avoid an apocalyptic uh, convergence with this. And when we, set, when, we, when, we, when we set the date for this, uh, it, it was clear that it was going to be in the spring. And, and then I said, hey, you know, uh, 70th anniversary is coming. That'll be a nice kind of celebratory time to come out. And uh, we had no idea at that point when the if the embassy was going to be moved, certainly not on that date. And as we got closer to... Uh, to, to, to publication date, and I realized the convergence of the embassy, of Nakba, of these weeks building up uh, along the Gaza border, I started having more and more of a sinking feeling. And uh, so I, 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 I'm glad to say that, uh, that the book has, uh, has, has managed to, to, uh, to survive this period. And, uh, and in terms of the, the general timing, uh, I would say that, that I, it's, it's really a question of when I felt I could be ready to actually address my neighbors again. And that was a process. And that really was a, a, a cumulative result of, of the work with, uh, with Muslim leaders. You said, um, you know, coming up to the 70th is a celebratory time. And I certainly personally feel Israel at 70 is a great moment of celebration as I think about it. Because for me, every Yom Atzmaut is really a remembering that, that Israel is a testament 
to the ability of the small people to overcome what is really impossible odds, right? To build the strong democratic state that we have today. But when I put my pulse on the finger of North American Jewry, I would say that the overarching feeling is not one of celebration, but one of exasperation. Exasperation at what the Israeli government has or hasn't done, or exasperation at the world for failing to understand Israel's predicament. So for you, when you personally think about Israel at 70, what's the, what's the overarching feeling? Well, uh, the 70th is actually a, a personal milestone for me because it, it, it marks 35 years uh, for when my wife Sarah and I moved to Israel. We moved in, uh, in the summer of 1982, uh, which means that we've been in Israel for exactly half the life of the state. And that's something that's, that still shocks me in a certain way because when, when Sarah and I moved to Israel, uh, we certainly I had the feeling that uh, that I'd missed the big story, 67, 73, and Tebi, Sadat. You know what could possibly happen, <laughs> and and so now to be marking half the life of the state uh, is it's it's this very very poignant moment for me. And when I think back to this roller coaster of, of, of Israel over these, these, these years, um, when I moved to Israel uh, that summer, Israel seemed to be a failing project. It was the summer of the first Lebanon war, which was the first war that Israel ever fought that not only failed to unite the country, but actually divided us. It was our Vietnam. And I remember walking the streets that summer and listening to people shout, literally shouting each, at each other on street corners, traitor, fascist, warmonger. And this is the Israel that I had, that I had come to, a dysfunctional society. And if war couldn't unite Israelis, and, and we forget this, we forget that moment. But for me, that's the moment that I became an Israeli. That is imprinted that is my trauma, is, is joining a society that was tearing itself apart. Inflation was 300% that summer. You would get paid, and you would rush to buy whatever you could because your paycheck would be worth considerably less the next day. Uh, Mizrahim and Ashkenazim, they were talking about an ethnic civil war. Today, whatever Mizrahi Ashkenazi civil war happens, happens in, in, in the family because of, uh, of, of, of the tremendous amount of in-marriage between these two communities. I mean, nobody even thinks, nobody remembers that in the summer of 1982, people seriously talked about an ethnic civil war. So what I, what I celebrate about Israel is our ability to overcome seemingly insoluble existential threats, to then promptly forget about those threats and forget that we've overcome them, and then face a whole new set of, of existential threats. And so we do face a whole new, 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 new set of, of, of major insurmountable problems. But when I look back on these last 35 years, I have deep faith that we're, we'll be able to deal with whatever comes. I love that answer because 
you know, I think about it also. What was it like to be in Israel in 48 or 67 or 76 for Ain Tebi or whatever the case might be in these high points? And it's, it's something to stand with a country in its high points. It's something else to stand with a country in its low points. So that's remarkable to me. So if I could just actually pick up on, on that point, because it actually relates in some way to what you said earlier about the, the prevalent feeling in large parts of the American Jewish community uh, of angst rather than celebration. And, and of course, growing alienation. And, and it actually occurred to me recently that one of the main reasons why I moved to Israel, and I didn't realize it then, but I feel it very strongly today, is to deny myself American Jewish privilege. And American Jewish privilege is the privilege of walking away from this story. Israel pisses me off, I, 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 I hate their policies, and so I'm, I'm, out of, I'm out of here. And, and I always felt, looking at, at, at Israelis, who have no option of opting out, whose parents came or grandparents came from Morocco and Yemen and Poland and Ethiopia, that's, that's their story. They don't have a choice. And I didn't want to have a choice either. And so, and so I, I honestly, I don't understand that, that, that sense of privilege. And I think one of the reasons that I wrote this book was to, to try to address that. At, at some point, I will ask you about the book. But what you said reminds me, I read an article that said that the Iran deal, you were so angry at American Jewry that you wrote an op-ed that was going to eviscerate us but then ultimately didn't publish it. Right. Yeah, I, 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 wrote, I wrote an op-ed on basically the morning after the Iran deal, uh, which 90% of Israelis opposed, and many of us saw and still see as a life and death threat to Israel, and which large parts, as you, as you all know, of the American Jewish community either didn't oppose or even supported. And so I wrote an op-ed saying that for the last years we in Israel have been hearing about how alienated many American Jews are from Israel, so let me return the compliment. And, um, and, and, and fortunately, no, no, don't, please don't applaud that because I, I repudiated it and I wouldn't have raised it, but, uh, but thank God I never sent that op-ed, it never got published. But it expressed, you know, I, I, I think it expresses uh, the, the frustration that's built into our relationship. And we are going to continuously disappoint each other. And we have to accept that as a given. And then we need to figure out how do we not write op-eds like that? How do we, how do we navigate a, a relationship which is, is, is inherently frustrating? I will ask you about the book now. So it's called Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, but as you said in your introduction, it really could have been called Letters to My Neighbor, because you're writing to your Palestinian neighbors, you're writing to the larger Arab world, you're writing to American Jewry. I presume in some corner of your mind, you're also writing to your Israeli neighbors. Was the same message for all the audiences in mind, or did you have different messages in mind for them? That's a great question. Uh, one of the, the struggles that I, I had when I, when I was writing this, was um, realizing that the religious tone 
of the book, and the book is 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 a frankly religious book. Uh, it 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 comes from my life as a religious Jew in in Jerusalem, and it's an attempt to create a shared religious language with my Palestinian neighbor, who presumably is also religious, in some fashion, and. If I want young American Jews to read the book as well, how will they handle that part of it? Uh, and in the end, I decided that uh, the integrity of the conversation with my Palestinian neighbor is more important, and that needs to be the focus of the book. And American Jews will take, will take from this whatever they will. And I also feel that in, in when we, when we speak to, to the younger generation, I feel that, that we often make a mistake when we ask ourselves, how do we speak to them in their language? And I hear that a lot. And at Hartman, we have those conversations. Can we, sitting in Jerusalem at the Hartman Institute, speak to young American Jews? We don't know their language. And I think that we're the first generation of Jews in 4,000 years to ask the question, how do we speak to the next generation in their language? My parents certainly did not care about what my language was. And their job was to tell me what their experience was, their understanding of Judaism, and you do with this what you want. And so in the end, I felt that for the sake of continuity, Jewish continuity, uh, I need to speak from the place of my authentic Jewish experience, and readers will take from that what they will. Some might turn away, some might pick it up 10 years from now, or, not, or, or, or some might be moved. But I feel that, that we need to be structuring our intergenerational conversation uh, in a different way. We need to be, to be letting our children and grandchildren know what, our, what, what was the experience of those of us, and I think it's true for many people here, who came of age in 1967 and 1973. What, what was our Israeli experience? And, and that's something that, that we need to convey. What was those of us who grew up in the Soviet Jewry protest movement? Why is that story? Why has that story disappeared from the American Jewish uh, educational uh, language? And so there's something. There's a disconnect in the way that one generation is is transmitting its Jewish experiences to the next. And so what I've tried to do here is just tell my own story. But it's certainly a story that resonates because. This book has done stunningly well in the reviews of both mainstream media and in the Jewish media, which is a huge kudos to you. So let me ask you about another one of the audiences, because I did read the book with the backdrop of all the violence and rioting in Gaza. You know, did you have the neighbor in Gaza in mind? Because when I think about the Palestinian people between the West Bank and Gaza, really it occurs to me it's two different societies, different leadership, different government, different economies, different security apparatuses, to a great extent, different ideologies. So did you have them in mind? And if not, what would be the message to your neighbor in Gaza, particularly now, after all this violence? Well, I did have my Gaza neighbor very much in mind for a very practical reason, which is that I served as a soldier in Gaza, 
and then my son served in Gaza. So Gaza has a very complicated place in our, in our family story. And, and, and I write about Gaza in, in the book. And so I, even though I look out on the West Bank, and that's what I see, uh, in my consciousness, I, I live with Gaza, I would say on some level, all the time. Gaza really shaped my understanding of this conflict. Uh, I went into Gaza as one person and came out uh, as, as a different person. Um, I would say that Gaza cured me permanently of whatever uh, lingering um, emotional or sentimental attachment I had to my right-wing upbringing. And, and Gaza was the experience, the shattering experience, where, where I realized that the hard gift of Zionism to the Jewish people was to own the responsibility of power. And I say that the, the hard gift because coming out of Gaza, I, I could no longer think of the Jewish people in any sense as being a victim people. And I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor, and this is very deep in me. But Gaza really cured me of any lingering sense of victimhood. I do not buy the facile uh, comparison uh, that, that much of the left makes uh, between Israel as, well, we, the Jews were victims and now we're victimizers. I don't, personally, I don't, I don't accept that. And uh, the reason I, for that is because of the peace overtures that we've made over the years. Those peace overtures were very important for the soul of the Jewish people for the integrity of our position. Nevertheless, while I don't believe we're victimizers, I also don't believe that we are in any sense victims anymore. And I call that a hard gift because the gift of Zionism was not only empowerment, but freeing us from the, the mentality, the trap of, uh, of victimhood. And if you ask me if I could actually make just reply to your last, the last part of your question. Go ahead. What would I say to my Palestinian father neighbor in Gaza today is uh, if there's anything that Palestinians should learn from Zionism, it's to despise the identity of victimhood. Because the reason that the state of Israel exists and is so successful is because the founding ethos of Zionism was contempt for Jewish victimhood. And uh, you see that in, uh, in uh, Bialik's poem about the uh, Kishinev pogrom, which is a, a howl of rage, not against the pogromists, against the Jews for allowing themselves to be victims. That, that poem is the founding ethos of the state of Israel. And, and the reason I believe that uh, that we managed the seemingly impossible uh, feat of moving from the lowest point in, in Jewish history, which is 1945, to the, the, what I consider to be one of the, the great moments in Jewish history, if not the great, greatest moment, which is today, is because the Jewish people, not only in Israel, but I would argue American Jewry, made the same leap was to say we're not we're not going to be victims anymore. 
So I want to ask you a question on that point, but I'll just remind the audience right now that if you have a question, to please write it on your index card and Delete and Naomi, who's at the back on that side, will be collecting it for you. And I just beg you to use your best penmanship. <laughs> right. Okay, so you actually write in the book about, um, to some extent, what the paradox that Israel is, to your point before, that you can see it as incredibly strong, or you can see it as vulnerable, see it as a deeply religious place, or you could see it as a violent, uh, not a violent, sorry, a vibrant, eclectic, um, secular place. You can see it as a country that's normal, striving to be normal like any other country in the world, or a country that's struggling to be exceptional, that feels it has this highest purpose. And you actually write, and I, I love this, that you see the Israeli national debate as a microcosm of Jewish history. And I love that idea, that the national debate that we see in Israel is simply a reflection of Jewish history arguing with itself. Who are we? What are we supposed to be? What's our greatest purpose? Can you tell us more about this idea? Well, when I, when I think of uh, what Israel is internally, what Israeli society is, if I had to define it in one line, it is we are the sum of our contradictions, of our paradoxes. And I see paradox as the, the essence of Israeli identity, and at its best, the, the animating force that gives the society vitality. Paradox, of course, contradictions also create the friction in Israeli society. But if you think about Israel as a gathering point of Jews from literally 100 countries, we have brought back with us from all of our wanderings everything that we've learned at the different stages of Jewish history. And so when I moved to Israel, I was coming as a child of the 60s, and even though I'd been in the JDL and with Mayor Kahana, I was also a child of the 60s. And I had those values, and I brought those values to, to what I expect of Israeli society, what I want of Israeli democracy. Uh, when I think of other Jews who, who came from, say, the former Soviet Union, or, or from uh, Iraq or Syria, uh, they came with very different experiences. I grew up in the freest, most accepting diaspora in Jewish history. Friends of mine from the former Soviet Union grew up in, in, in un, as, a, as a persecuted minority in a totalitarian society. So we each bring different experiences, different expectations. It's not a coincidence that the Hartman Institute is an American product of American immigrants. And that uh, Yisrael Beitenu, the party of Avigdor Lieberman, is a product of Russian immigrants. And so what I've learned in Israel in all these years is, on the one hand, to insist on the, the, the necessity of my American Jewish experience to be part of the Israeli conversation, but also to learn a certain Jewish humility and realize that there's no one Jewish experience or ideology that can claim to represent the full authenticity of Jewish history. And so I think we are fated to live with our contradictions and to manage our contradictions rather than try to solve them, whether that's the, contradict the paradoxes of Israel as, as, a, as a secular state in a holy land, uh, as a meeting point between East and West, uh, as the state of all of its citizens the and the homeland of the Jewish people. All of these, these difficult ideological expectations, these 
opposing ideas of what Israel is supposed to be that we brought home with us all need to have a place in the public sphere. And I would broaden that to include the, the question of Israel's public sphere reflecting the diversity of the Jewish people around the world. Because if we're serious about Israel as the project of the Jewish people, then we have a responsibility to create a public space in which Jews around the world see some reflection of their own Jewish identity and practice in our public space. And if we fail to do that, then we're failing Zionism. And that's why just parenthetically, I would, I would add that, that when the liberal denominations speak to the Israeli public about religious pluralism, they're using the wrong language. It's not, for most Israelis, it's not about religious pluralism. It's about being faithful to Zionism and the Jewish people. It's about Jewish unity. And speak to Israelis in that language, and you'll get a different response. So it's not just the Arab world that has trouble understanding the notion of peoplehood. It's all of us. Yeah, it's all of us. Well, and, and, it's, and it's understanding how to actually uh, honor Jewish peoplehood. So I would say that this book ultimately is about identity, peoplehood, and most especially narratives. And you write that the two-state solution is complicated by a two-narrative problem. And I would argue that perhaps it's actually a multi-narrative problem when you take into account both moderate and fundamentalist points of view. But you also write, to solve our conflict, we must not only recognize each other's right to self-determination, but also each side's right to self-definition. Now, Israelis and Palestinians, I don't have to tell you, spend an inordinate amount of time trying to convince the other that their tragedy is the greater tragedy. And I'd say we don't even see it play out so much directly, so much as we see it play out in the media, in, mul in multilateral institutions, in the United Nations, and European governments, and so forth. Are you seeing any traction in the two sides being able to actually listen and appreciate that there's a, a narrative on the other side? Well, you know, there's, there are lots of asymmetries in this conflict. There's the most obvious is the power imbalance. But there's another asymmetry which doesn't, uh, off, that doesn't get noted often enough. And that is that there is a significant group of Israelis who have made an effort to try to understand the other side. And we've seen absolutely no sign among Palestinians of even beginning to debate whether their society's complete rejection of our legitimacy might be missing the story. Now, it's a lot easier for my side to be for people on my side to be more nuanced because we're the winning side. It's a lot harder when you're occupied. Nevertheless, when you look at the Palestinian media, I can't recall, and I, I write this in the book, I can't recall one, one op-ed in any Palestinian newspaper all these years that questions the prevailing orthodoxy in Palestinian society, that the Jews have no legitimacy, that we're not a real people, and that we have no real roots in the land. So what I'm looking for are some Palestinian voices, and I know that they, those voices exist. They just don't exist in the public sphere. Now what I see happening on the Israeli side is a retreat from that willingness to listen to the narrative on the other side. Uh, the journey that I went on in the 1990s 
was part of a wider context where many Israelis were starting to ask themselves the question, how does this conflict look through the eyes of our neighbors? Very few Israelis today ask that question, again, for understandable reasons. And I was very much part of that until the last few years, that, that sense of we tried to make peace, we got suicide bombings in return, they don't accept our right to be here, we have to dig in and just wait out the siege. And I still believe that. We have to wait out the siege. But I don't think that that's enough anymore. So I, I do look forward to this book being published in Hebrew and to having that conversation. And, and, you know, the, the, and, and to go back to a question that I don't think I answered, Aviva, which is that I really hope that this book will trigger multiple parallel conversations. Because there are different kinds of conversations that need to happen between Israelis and Palestinians, among Israelis, and among American Jews. So we have enough questions here to take us to midnight. Okay. But I promise we won't do that. There's a lot of people that are asking about the feedback. I said midnight, and look what happened. I'm sorry. Uh, there's a lot of people that are curious about what the response has been. So the first chapter, I believe, is already available for download on the Times of Israel's Arabic site. You, so one person has asked, do you know how many times it's been downloaded? And then what has the response been so far? Yeah, we've had a few hundred downloads. And it's again, it's been out now for about two weeks. So um, it's really premature to speak about, about uh, a trend, but I can speak anecdotally. Uh, I've gotten, there are several people who are writing me letters in return. And one of them is active in BDS. And another uh, grew up in a refugee camp uh, near Bethlehem, came to the States to study, and is, start, and is writing a book in response to, to my book. We're planning to do a tour of campuses uh, he and I, his name is Walid Issa, uh, God willing, this fall. And uh, so those are two immediate substantive consequences. Uh, I've gotten lots of responses to my Facebook page announcing the book. Uh, not all of them have been uh, outrageous and hostile. But uh, the ranges are from the curious to the frankly genocidal, uh, to, uh, to the grateful. I got a, a, you ask about Gaza, I got this very moving uh, letter in Hebrew from a young woman in Gaza who identifies herself as a former journalist and writes, I'm, I, I hope that this will give me hope. And so there are people out there. Uh, I've been invited for coffee all over the West Bank I haven't told my wife this yet. And, uh, and so I think that, you know, the, the, the negative, I would even say, pathologically hostile responses were exactly what I expected. I, I, I live there. I know, I know what, what's, what's more or less what's out there. But I'm very touched by the the human responses that I've gotten, the warmth, the, again, the curiosity, and the willingness to hear an Israeli story that is open to hearing a Palestinian story. That's the invitation. That's the dynamic 
that I hope this book will trigger. And again, you know, I'm not a politician. I, I'm only a writer. I can only uh, do in. I can only work in my in my uh, narrow area. But I'm hoping to at least begin to model what a conversation might sound like, a a deeper conversation between Palestinians and Israelis, uh, which is which I believe has some possibility because I've been involved in these deep conversations about Zionism and Israel and Judaism with Muslim American leaders for the last years. And those are not easy conversations. I would imagine that when you wrote the book, in your head, you were imagining the response letter that you would receive from that Palestinian neighbor. What did that response letter say? Uh, Khazar, Zionist crusader, uh, get out of Palestine. I got lots of those. But, and yes, that's really what I, what I expected, and I took a deep breath and said, and get ready got. for that. That was the reality to some extent. Oh, right? yeah, I got, I, got, I got a fair number of those and continue to get them. And I really tried to prepare myself for the worst, and whatever, whatever positive response, I couldn't, I couldn't even anticipate that. I, and I didn't want to anticipate it. I'm putting it out, prepare myself for the worst, and you know, inshallah, whatever happens. You'd be surprised how many people have asked about Fauda. Uh, do you know Fauda? My favorite show. I'm not surprised so, at my all. My favorite show. Too. Season two is now available for download on Netflix. I have to confess that I've seen season two on illegal downloading. And uh, so if anyone can't wait to find out the ending, see me after this. <laughs> right. Um, you mentioned that the book is, is a deeply religious book, and you actually write a lot about the intersection of Judaism and Islam. And there's a question here that asks about your experience with prayer, and what is your most fervent prayer for Israel? Wow. That Israel should discover itself its deepest self, its deepest reservoirs of strength, of, of spiritual vitality, and that we make the transition from a state that saved the Jewish people to a state that saves Judaism. Amen. Let's stay on the topic of faith for a moment. Um, there's an idea that you write in letter seven, which is titled Isaac and Ishmael. And you write about how the Torah directs the Jewish people from time to time to relinquish ownership of the land of Israel, the notion of Shemitah, that every seven years the land has to lie fallow. And you write about the fact that the land of Israel can't actually be owned by any person. And that an extrapolation of that is that anything that's spiritual or holy can't be owned by a person. Can you talk a little bit about this idea and how you think that it overlays and how we see the conflict? Yeah, this is uh, one, one of many examples of what I've learned from my colleagues and friends at Hartman these, these last years, sitting in seminars, uh, absorbing uh, these, these just incredible insights from, from people who, who've been thinking deeply about these questions for many years. 
and, and who come from politically from very different backgrounds, certainly different from mine. I'm the only graduate of the JDL in the, at Hartman, as far as, as far as I know. And uh, there shouldn't be more than one, but there should be one. And, uh, and, and so what I, um, this is, this is a, an example of, I would say, Hartman Torah, which is to take a, a, an, an ancient concept and try to renew it and apply it in, in unexpected ways. And the notion that sacred, that sacred land can never be owned is very deep in Judaism. In fact, I would say that that is, is, is the definition of Israel as, as, as the Holy Land. It's owned by God, and we are custodians. That's the meaning of Shemitah. That's the meaning of the Jubilee, is that in ancient times, farmers, every 49 years, you actually give up ownership of the land and in, in the most explicit way possible. And every seven years, you contract your, your sense of control over, over the land. And so I try to apply that to, to the conflict. And again, this is what I've learned from, from my colleagues at Hartman. And that is that if the definition of sacred land is that we don't really possess it, then if we find ourselves... 2,000 years after we were exiled and now we've come home and we find that there's another people in that land, then how do we relate to that people? How do we relate to the claim of ownership? And in principle, I feel deeply that all of the land between the river and the sea is mine. And I have no compunction about saying that. And for me, it's actually not the West Bank. For me, the term that I'm most comfortable with is Judea and Samaria. Uh, it's certainly not occupied territory, but we are occupying another people that's sharing the same space. And so when you try to draw on, on the traditional Jewish understanding of the nature of the land, one way, one possible way of navigating this dilemma is to say, well, sharing the land with this counterclaimant is not a violation of God's promise to us, but in some sense, one can justify sharing the land in tradi through traditional Jewish concepts. So my follow-up question, which you've already answered, I was going to ask you how it aligns with the biblical commandment notion, the idea that the land of Israel is an inheritance to the Jewish people, but you've actually sort of answered that. And I guess the answer, if I would answer it myself, is that the land is an inheritance to the Jewish people, but not the people that come with it. That, and also, you know, the borders of the land always changed, even in ancient times. And uh, the borders are not fixed. And I have a friend of mine who was one of the leaders and founders of the settlement movement, Rabbi Yoel Binun, who's a major character in Like Dreamers. And uh, what Rav Yoel says to his fellow settlers is, um, this is an aspiration. The complete land of Israel is, is an aspiration that we will never relinquish. But under, but these, these circumstances at this time require us to contract our, our, the, the implementation of our claim, but never the claim itself. So you spoke a lot about your work with the Hartman Institute. Can you, can you tell us how these various 
overarching themes of all the work that you do between being a published author and being a journalist and the work at the Hartman Institute. How does this all fit together? It's a great question. Uh, I would say that my basic commitments from the time when I was a, a teenage activist in the Soviet Jewry movement, through Aliyah, through the writing that I've done over the years, I was really twofold. One is trying to understand how, what it means to be a Jew in the post-Holocaust, post-state era. And to just unpack that for a moment, uh, we are the generation that was born after the greatest Jewish dream and the greatest Jewish nightmare were both fulfilled. And I would, I, would add a third, I would add a third component of that, which is the emergence of American Jewry, the first truly at-home Jewish community outside of the land of Israel in Jewish history. And so we have these three extraordinary forces of Jewish, Jewish history converging at the same time, happening just in the time before we were born, and we now inherited this totally transformed Jewish reality. And so I, I always felt the need to try to figure out, as, as when I was a, a teenage activist, politically, how do we respond politically to these, to these upheavals in Jewish history? And any one of those events would have been enough to change the Jewish people for centuries. And having all three of those historic events converging at roughly the same time, uh, it's, not a, it's, it's, it's not surprising that we are a generation that lives in profound confusion. Because really, they, I, I can't think of another generation that has had ever, ever, that has had to deal with that kind of a convergence. You had the generation of the destruction of the temple. We experienced that with the, our equivalent was the Shoah. You had the generation that of the desert going into the land of Israel. We experienced that, the, the exodus. We experienced our own exodus. But it all, all of those events happened in the past. They were separated by centuries. Here they all happened almost simultaneously. So the first commitment that I that I've have is to try to understand, first of all, what my own responses, what my own Jewish identity is, and what should the Jewish people look like in response to that convergence of, of upheavals. And the second commitment, and it's related, is how does the Jewish people live with the rest of the world? After the Holocaust, the message of the Holocaust, which was the message for my father, it was the message I grew up with, it's why I ended up as a teenager in the JDL, is that the Holocaust proves that the non-Jewish world hates us and always will hate us, and there is nothing for us to seek there. That's where I come out of. But then there's the contradictory message of the state of Israel, and the promise of Zionism, which is to restore the Jewish people to the community of nations. And as a Zionist, I take that promise very seriously. And so, how, what is our relationship to the non-Jewish world? Uh, I married a woman who converted to Judaism. A, uh, a, my, my extended family 
ranges from uh, Orthodox Jews in Queens to Episcopalians in Connecticut. And I think that that also is an expression uh, of this moment in Jewish history. And, and so what is our relationship to the rest of the world? So I would say that, that the work that I do with Muslims, this book, uh, is, is an attempt to hold those two commitments. On the one hand, to try to understand who we are at this moment as a people, and then how do we relate to the rest of the world, and, and how do we change the pattern of the last 2,000 years uh, and really try to fulfill the as yet unfulfilled promise of Zionism to transform the relationship of the Jewish people with the rest of the world. So that's really interesting to me. And as I think about how the Palestinian conflict plays into it, so I, I'm always asking myself this sort of philosophical question of whether the conflict with the Palestinian people is the leading indicator or the lagging indicator in that do we have to solve the conflict to bring greater unity to the Jewish people, greater unity in the Middle East region, or does it go the other way around? And lately, it seems to me there's indications of it going the other way around, as you see warming relations, certainly with Egypt, though we already have a peace agreement, with the um, Saudis, with uh, Bahrain, UAE, all these um, Sunni states. So what's your feeling about that? The, um, you, when you asked me earlier about the moment that this book has come, come out, uh, I really was thinking uh, in, 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 two, in two directions. One is in the Palestinian direction, where our relationship has never been worse, where there's never been more, uh, a greater you, sense of that? despair. Say it again. Never been worse. You think that? The second Intifada? Yeah, I think that, that in, in a way, we are now definitively post-peace process. And, and there's a growing feeling that we are post-two-state solution. And that worries me deeply. Because if the international community gets to the point, and we're getting closer there, where it gives up on the two-state solution, and we move into one-state solution mode, then I'm afraid that my friends in the settlement movement who think that, that that's going to be good for Israel don't understand that the international community will not accept the settlers' vision of a one-state solution. And that means that right of return to this one state will not only be the Jewish right of return. And that has all kinds of other consequences. And during the, the Oslo years, I was very much an Oslo skeptic. I didn't believe that Arafat was going to, to, uh, to bring peace. And, and <laughs> I worked in those years for a magazine, The Jerusalem Report, and the editor at that time had a nickname for me. He called me Yesterday's Man because I refused to see that the glorious future uh, of Oslo was, was upon us. And, uh, and I felt that Oslo was leading us to war. And, and now that the conventional wisdom is that a two-state solution is failing or is over, this is the moment, maybe I'm just naturally uh, curmudgeon, but I just feel that, that, that we have to fight to preserve the, the, the possibility of a two-state solution. And I really feel that that's an existential issue. So uh, what gives me hope 
if on the one hand the Palestinian-Israeli track is dead and there is no possibility for the foreseeable future of reviving that for all kinds of reasons, but something else has opened up in the last couple of years, and this is what you've just mentioned, Aviva, which is that parts of the region, especially the Saudis, who could have imagined two years ago that Israel and Saudi Arabia would be strategic allies, that the Saudi media would be publishing op-eds against anti-Semitism. The Saudi media was the most anti-Semitic media in the world and would be interviewing Israeli leaders. And so we are really in, a, in what Shimon Peres in the 90s called the New Middle East, except it's not, this being the Middle East, it's not going to happen through economic cooperation, at least not initially, but through military cooperation. And so my hope is that we're going to figure out a way of moving from a strategic relationship to a political relationship, and that can have consequences on the Palestinian front, even if it won't be generated from within Palestinian society. And so one of my hopes, and maybe it's a forlorn hope, is that uh, this book might get to, to, to some people in Saudi Arabia. And, and to start, that we need to... Look, I think one of the things that we learned from the Egyptian peace treaty is that if there isn't a deeper component to the work of the diplomats, the peace will not happen. It will remain on the surface. And I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that the Egyptian-Israeli treaty has, has endured for 40 years, but I wouldn't really call it a peace treaty. It's, it's a glorified ceasefire. And maybe the time has come for us to try to take that to the next level. So when it comes to the Palestinians, I guess there's a lot of routes that a person could presume to take if they wanted to lead a peace process. There's the strategic route. There's the diplomatic route. There's the economic route. And the book, the book is so infused with religion. So if I were to make you chief peacemaker, what would be the route that you would take? Because it seems to me like it would be the religious way. Is that right? Yeah, I would certainly have uh, rabbis and imams at the table. Not all, <laughs> but, but selective rabbis and selective imams uh, and guiding the process all the way through. One of the, the disconnects, there are many, uh, between the we a Western orientation and the Middle Eastern orientation is how we relate to religion. Religion is an integral part of the public space everywhere in the Middle East. You can't separate religion and state, and including in Israel. Uh, I once interviewed uh, Shulamit Aloni, some, the name might, some of you might remember her, the late Shulamit Aloni, who was the leader, basically the founder of the left-wing uh, anti-clericalist party Meretz. And I asked her if her model for Israel was separation uh, was the American model of sep total separation of religion and state. And she totally shocked me. She said, we can never adopt the American model here because religion is too integral to Jewish identity. This was Shulamit Aloni. So, and in the Arab world, of course, it's, it's, it's far deeper. So the first disconnect between the West and the Middle East is the place of religion in the public sphere. And, and one of the many reasons why the peace process has failed is because it was an attempt by secular elites 
and both societies to circumvent these deep religious feelings and constituencies in both societies. If you don't try to bring at least part of your religious community into peacemaking, then, then it will fail. Again, there were, there were many reasons for why it failed, but that's certainly one of them. So I would start with that. Uh, next, I would um, focus on accepting as a starting point that the maximalist claims of both sides are legitimate and unavoidable. And by that I mean that the position of the settlers and of the Likud, that it's all mine, is the legitimate Israeli starting point. And the position of the Palestinians, that it's all theirs, including the state of Israel, is a legitimate Palestinian position. And what I write in, in the book is that I have no problem with the Palestinian maps that don't show the word Israel because my internal map doesn't have the word Palestine on it. And, and my starting point is to use the language of the Mishnah, Kula Sheli, it's all mine. But that's my starting point. The question is, is it your starting point or also your end point? And one of the reasons, again, why I think the peace process kept failing is that the diplomats were pretending that the two sides really didn't have maximalist claims. But of course we do. And, and, and so those maximalist claims need to be honored but, don't, but cannot be given veto power over, over the final, over the conclusion of the process. So you begin with the acknowledgement that both sides, each from its own perspective, can legitimately claim the totality of the land. And then you get to the point where you say, but each side needs to give up something that belongs by right to them. Judea and Samaria belongs to the Jewish people. But if we're going to have an alternative to the current situation, I have to give up what's mine. Jaffa, Haifa, from a Palestinian perspective, that's yours. But you're going to have to give that up if you're going to reach an agreement. So those are some of the elements that have been missing until now from our conversation. And I'd say the final element, which is really what this book tries to do, is honor the narratives on both sides. Each side is its story. Uh, I was on a panel recently with a Palestinian reconciliation activist, uh, Huda Abu Arkub, and uh, someone in the audience asked us, uh, why can't Palestinians and Israelis just forget 70 years ago, forget what happened, be like us, be forward-looking? And she and I both almost simultaneously shouted, absolutely not. You can't, if you're, if you're an Israeli, if you're a Palestinian, you are, to a great extent, you are in a constant dialogue with your past. The past is not past. Seventy years is contemporary in Jewish history and, and in the Middle East. And so this notion that in order to make peace you have to leave your narrative at the door is a, is a guarantee that peace will fail.
So this is my story. You have your story. What are we, what are we going to do with our contradictory stories? And how do you see the current leadership today in <laughs> next next question <laughs> you know i'll i'll um i won't say anything about the palestinian leadership uh, i have enough problems on my side uh i would say about netanyahu that on the one hand as an israeli citizen uh, i feel a great debt to him because he has kept israel relatively safe and secure through some of the most turbulent times in the Middle East. That's one side of the equation. And I think uh, that's true for most Israelis, even Israelis who despise him. You'll see when you talk to Israelis, they'll say, well, look at the economy, look at, look at, look at the military, uh, look at uh, even the Iran deal two years later. That's one side of the story. The other side of the story is that Netanyahu is destroying Jewish unity. He is destroying the chances for reconciliation with, uh, uh, I feel, with even those parts of the Middle East that are now turning toward us because he's incapable of speaking to our neighbors in any language other than the language of security and threat. And I want an Israeli leader who will speak the language of security and threat because this is the Middle East, but who will also speak a language of vision and hope and reconciliation. And he ain't that guy. So I, um, I think like, like most Israelis, I feel um, conflicted about just about everything. And, uh, and Netanyahu is part of what I feel conflicted about. So, you see, that's about all our time. So I'm going to ask you the one last question, which is to go ahead and answer the question that you wish I had asked you, but didn't. Oh, wow. You were pretty good, Aviva, I have to tell you. <laughs> so, But I you still the, have something, I know. I think the, um, really the question that's that's very much on my mind is, is the future of Israeli Judaism and the future of the American-Jewish-Israeli relationship as part of that question. And is there, is there hope for a spiritual transformation in Israel or are we just going to see the religious status quo growing and uh, more the ultra-Orthodox community becoming more and, and more powerful? And uh, that's a question that, one of the main questions that preoccupies Israelis. But uh, for me, the question has, a, has an added dimension, which is, are there parts of Israeli society that are ready to take on what I think is our greatest spiritual challenge, which is the, what should Judaism look like in a sovereign Jewish state? And I feel that we are beginning to see the first signs of small groups around the country starting to, to take responsibility for Israeli Judaism. And, and so when, when, when American Jews respond to the humiliation 
with which the state, officially, the state of Israel treats the American Jewish community. I understand the anger. I don't understand the alienation and the despair. And if anything, I think the anger and the frustration should be uh, leading to a much deeper level of involvement and commitment, uh, because just as uh, you are the only uh, American Jewry that I have, uh, Iran deal or not, uh, we're the only state of Israel that you have. And we don't have the option of, of walking away. So on that note, let me thank you and end with the words, one sec. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to end by quoting something that Israel's president, Ruven Rivlin, frequently says. He says, the children of Israel are not, the children of Abraham, sorry, are not doomed to live together in war, but rather destined to live together in peace. And with that, let me call on Amy Klein to close the thank evening. You, I have just two quick thank yous and two quick invitations. The thank yous go to all of you for being here tonight. This is a great turnout. And to you, Yassi and Aviva, for a wonderful, wonderful conversation. My two invites are uh, for immediately after this, Join us in the 11th Al-Sidman Community Court for a little dessert, a lot of book signing, and some uh, more books to be purchased outside. And if we run out of books, which I think we will, it's widely available online. The second invite is, this is a Hartman Synagogue. It's Temple Emanuel, but it's also really a Hartman Synagogue. And we love all things Hartman. And so check our website templeemmanuel.com, Hartman Learning Initiative. We always have Hartman programs. We do Hartman Learning here year-round. Um, we'll take a break in the summer so a group of us can go to the CLP program in Jerusalem in a couple of weeks. But when we come back in the fall, we already have speakers lined up in October, in November, in December, and there will be more than that. So check our website, the Hartman Learning Initiative. Come back again, and thank you all for being here tonight.